You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. to the end of 1 Timothy, um, and I, it's not that I've decided just to go with short and sort of chunks because I don't want it to finish, it's just that the, the topic today is that of, uh, well, involves slavery, and I thought it'd be just good slowing down a little bit on this one, um, rather than having a great chunk to work through. So after this, we've got two more uh, sermons on 1 Timothy, Lord willing, there'll be one more before Christmas and another one after Christmas, so another week and then we'll turn to um, Matthew's Gospel in the morning, and um, in, in the evening we'll be looking at other Christmas-related themes. Um, but this morning we're continuing with Paul's instructions. He's been uh, giving various instructions for different parts of the household of God. He's instructed for the, the care of the widows, and then he's instructed that the, uh, um, the elders are, are to be honoured, and financial compensation for the elders. I think I may have mentioned that last week. Um, and then he turns to this other important group in the church, which are those who are bond servants. So hear these words, um, the word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful, or literally must not despise them, it's really strong, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Beloved. The title of my sermon this morning is uh, Godliness in Hard Places. Godliness in Hard Places. And in, in chapter 6, Paul turns to this other important group in the church, those who are bond servants or slaves. So we've had all these various instructions as Paul is instructing them as to what godliness means in these different, um, according to these different relations, right honour of the true and living God and then right honour of, of people around us. And then he turns to those who are under a yoke as bond servants and how they are to regard their masters as worthy of all honour. So Paul, he's addressing in these two verses uh, Christian slaves, both those with harsh, well, those with unbelieving masters and also those whose masters have actually become believers. And these different, uh, different slaves, different servants face rather different temptations. So before we get to the text, first I just want to have a little think, first of all, about the character and the nature of uh, slavery in the ancient world, and just talk about that a little bit before we actually get to the text. And then we'll look at these instructions, his instructions for slaves with um, unbelieving masters and those with believing masters. And then we'll just draw out some lessons for us today, things for us to be praying for, um, and things like that. So we'll take this in, in three parts. So first off, just thinking about slavery in the ancient world. And I think immediately when we think of slavery, the first thing we, we think of is just the, the horrific, or often the, the horrific 
slavery of the, the um, African slave trade as European slave traders uh, took uh, Africans who had been uh, kidnapped or enslaved and then took them over to the, the plantations in the States and then you have this sort of the slave triangle and the, the goods, the cotton comes back to the industrial north in Britain, Manchester, you know, Cottonopolis as it was called and then it, it goes round and round and we, we sort of think um, appropriately enough just of the, the great evils of that trade and think of those chained in slave markets. It's important to remember that uh, even in, in the sort of 16th, 17th century, um, that, that slavery was just widespread in, uh, or in the ancient world and in the world generally. Europeans enslaved Europeans, uh, Africans enslaved Africans. There were just sort of slave markets throughout the world and slave markets throughout the ancient world. And the Bible actually uh, condemns uh, that sort of kidnapping and taking people into slavery. In fact, we've already had that in 1 Timothy. If you remember back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and Paul is, at the, be the beginning, Paul is speaking, talking about the right use of the law. And do you remember he's talking about how the law was not laid down for the righteous, but for the, for the disobedient? And then he, he went through, essentially, the Ten Commandments there. Um, and so he, he talks about the, the, the law being laid down for those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's the, the fifth commandment, on, about honoring your parents. Then murderers, that's the sixth commandment. The sexually immoral, and many practice homosexuality. That's about the seventh commandment, and about marriage. And then he talks about uh, those who are enslavers, or literally man-stealers, uh, in verse 10, chapter 1. And that's the, the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And so um, the, the kidnapping and taking people into slavery is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment. And this is picked up in, in the Westminster uh, Catechism, Longer Catechism, question 142. Um, what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Answer, the sins forbidden. It's going to take us a, a while to get to question 142, isn't it? Uh, the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, uh, besides the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing, and oppression. So when someone will say to you, well, doesn't the Bible condone slavery? You can say, well, actually, the Bible condemns slavery. You can say, well, at least, what about the Eighth Commandment? So it's helpful to distinguish, I think, between the kind of uh, chattel slavery where people are forcibly enslaved and kidnapped and brought into slavery and forced into slavery um, with uh, other kinds of slavery or indentured service um, which were also prevalent in the ancient world and more recently as well. So if you turned up at the, the slave market in Ephesus, um, and it was a big slaving centre because it was a port city and a, a, a large population, so a big slave market, you would have people who had been kidnapped forcibly and taken there. Uh, you'd have uh, prisoners of war. But you'd also have people who are entering into uh, slavery or indentured services voluntarily. They're doing it voluntarily. You think, well, why would, any, why would anyone do that? Um, well, it was a, a way, first of all, of dealing with poverty. If you've fallen on uh, hard times, you've got nothing. Uh, there's no, you could either turn to criminality or beggary, but if you don't want to do that, you could sell your labor, essentially, for 10 years or, or so on, and sell yourself into one of these big households. So it was a way of dealing with, with poverty. It was a way of dealing with debt. So in the ancient world, they wouldn't have um, debtors prisons, um, but actually those who are, 
had a load of debt on them would uh, be, have to work that off and uh, eventually would gain their freedom. So, um, so there's these different aspects in, in the ancient world. And slaves, as you, as you know, may know, the, um, could have actually quite high levels of uh, responsibility. So you'd have those in the household who were teachers or, or doctors who were um, indentured servants who were their part of the household. They weren't slaves, teachers and doctors. And you may think some things uh, never change very much. But, but so you could have sort of uh, slaves or servants who could actually own property and become valued members of the household. So it's a way of dealing with, it's also a way of dealing with uh, criminals. So prison tended to be a place where you're held before the trial and then after sentencing, you're sent into well, labor camps or some other kind of slavery, whereas obviously in our society, you're locked up uh, at Her Majesty's pleasure. I think the state or the taxpayer pays 45 or 50,000 pounds, whatever it is a year uh, to, to support the prisoner. There they would be sold into uh, a labor camp or some form of labor. So there's, when you think about slavery in the ancient world, it, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? There's a, there's a variegated form and lots of different experiences. And here the, the different experience would depend a lot on the master of these big households. These great Greco-Roman households, they might have uh, 100 people in them. They might just have a, a, lot of, a lot of servants, a lot of slaves, probably different kinds of slaves. And how the, the bonded bond servants got on would depend a lot on what the master was like. And the master in the Greco-Roman world, the paterfamilia, would have just wide powers, really the the, the, he was sort of the civil government, essentially, or the other governors. So he had wide powers. So slaves, if they were abused, they, they could potentially appeal to Caesar. You know, some, sometimes did, but you know, good luck with that. Um, it's pretty and so a lot of the, the slaves in these households, you've got, a, you've got a wicked, unbelieving master. You really are in for it with very little uh, legal protection, no legal protection at all in, in many, many cases. And so enormous levels of abuse, sexual abuse um, of, of slaves went on, just horrific. Now, in ancient Israel, as you read the Old Testament, there is more protection under law. So you may remember that the bond servants and the masters, they, they would be regulated. So if a master, for instance, in ancient Israel beat a slave and the slave lost a tooth, then the slave would have to be set free under Israelite law. So there's many more... Uh, checks and balances and regulations in ancient Israel than there were in kind of Greco-Roman society. So you sort of need to make some distinctions there as well. So um, just there's some things about slavery in the ancient world, but, but we need to, I think, remember the narrative, the story of the Bible as a whole. The Bible as a whole is a story of slaves set free, isn't it? It's a story uh, of slaves set free. It's got people there in slavery, in bondage, oppressed in Egypt, and God in his mercy and grace comes and releases them. And they were to never forget that experience. And they were to treat others remembering that they themselves had been bond servants, had been slaves uh, in Egypt. And the gospel is a story of slaves set free, isn't it? The gospel is a story of slaves set free. We are enslaved to our sin. We're enslaved to Satan. But God in his great love sent Jesus as a servant, as a slave to die upon the cross, to take that debt upon himself that we could never repay. He took that upon himself, and he died and rose again, and we are now uh, set free to be his servants. He is our master. We have a master in heaven. We are his 
uh, slaves. We are his bonds servants. Um, and so when Paul writes his letters, he, 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 he's, you know, he doesn't write Paul, you know, mighty apostle of the Lord Jesus, great and fantastic preacher. He, say, he says Paul, you know, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. So the, the Bible is a story of slaves set free. And the gospel is a story of slaves set free. And we have been set free um, from uh, sin by God's great grace. So we're going to turn to um, the text now, these uh, two verses, with some of that in mind. And there's a few remarkable things here. I think, firstly, it's just remarkable that this little chunk, this little paragraph is here at all. You think slaves or bond servants in the ancient world, they were the forgotten people. They're the people you don't want to talk about. You know, they, they actually make the whole thing run. They make the whole economy work. But they're subhuman, aren't they? We don't want to talk about them. And we just sort of carry on society with these forgotten people, just invisible. But they're not invisible. They're there. They're part of the congregation. They're brothers and sisters. And they're worthy of pastoral care. So Paul there, he's speaking to these different groups, and there are these bond servants there. And they're not hiding off in, in, in the back, sort of unworthy of being a part of the congregation. Actually, Paul or Timothy, he's, he's actually trying to minister to them and encourage them and instruct them. So they're part of the communion of saints. And they have this high status and they're given this great dignity. So I think one of the remarkable things is that this paragraph is even there at all. Um, you think of many people, just be the forgotten people. And around the world today in culture, there are people who are just, they're anonymous, they're forgotten people, aren't they? Well, they're, they're lifted up by the gospel and treated with dignity and concern, as we, we see here. So um, we turn to the text. And Paul, he's already given various instructions in uh, the letter of Ephesians that the, the church would have known about. And there he dealt with um, slaves and masters. In 1 Timothy, he just addresses the, the slaves or the bond servants, um, having already addressed the, the masters before. And he says, uh, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, worthy of all honor. Well, what would that involve? What might that look like? I think it means uh, obedience to their master, not kicking against their authority that is over against them, but accepting that. I mean, Paul was often saying to, or he says to bond servants, slaves, look, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Uh, but there are those who can't gain their freedom by any lawful means. And so he's saying, look, accept those in authority and regard them with all honor. And he's talked a little bit in Ephesians about what that might mean. He's talking about um, working not by the way of eye service, not just working when they're, they're being uh, supervised uh, or as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, remembering Christ as their master, doing the will of God from the heart, he says there, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. So cheerfully getting on with their work, even with a harsh master, knowing that ultimately they are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and the Lord, uh, verse 8 of Ephesians uh, 6, 6-8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive that from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. So he said some of that already to them, but he's, he's repeating that regarding their masters worthy of, of, of honor, so uh, obedience there, and working cheerfully, doing the work that's been assigned to them. Um, and I think it's interesting, you can think of you know, lots of examples in the scriptures of those who have who've done this and have, have embodied this. Think of Joseph as a slave in Potiphar's house and his, how he worked hard for his for Potiphar and, and 
he got on with, with the work there and God was with him. Or you could think of um, Daniel and his friends in Babylon as they learn, had to learn all the uh, teaching of, of the, the wisdom of the Babylonians. They got on and they did that. They didn't sort of kick against it. Um, you think of different examples of people who have been bond servants and slaves in the scriptures and have been godly Israelites, how they've, they've got on with it. So honoring does, it means a sort of obedience to those in authority. Um, but it doesn't mean um, blind obedience, does it? Um, it doesn't mean blind obedience. Again, think of Joseph. Um, his mistress made demands on him. She wanted, uh, Joseph, she wanted Joseph to have sex with her. And he's like, no, I cannot do this wicked thing. Um, and he says this, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he's being given this command, command essentially, by, and he said, no, I, I will not sin against God. And there were consequences, weren't there? He was then thrown into the prison. Or you think again of Daniel and his, his friends there in uh, Babylon. Um, there were things they wouldn't do. Uh, there, there was food they wouldn't eat. And they had to be very wise in the way they navigated and handled that. They still wanted to offer honor, but there were things they wouldn't do. And in the matter of bowing down to worship the statue, there was a, like, no, we will not do that although we forfeit our lives. Okay, so those who are in these houses, honor your master uh, doesn't mean blind obedience. It doesn't mean passivity. Or think the other example is um, Esther, isn't it, in the, the Persian king Ahasuerus. And she was submitting to her husband, this kind of pagan uh, Persian king, uh, in, her, in her manner. But it was by no means passive, was it? Um, and it was... There were things, there were just different, um, different loyalties she had. Her highest loyalty was to the God of heaven. So honoring masters doesn't mean blind obedience, and that's, that's true with the, the civil authorities uh, that you see in the rest of the scriptures. The apostles saying, look, we must obey God rather than men. And that's true of the, the civil authorities today, isn't it? We're, we're called to, to honor the, the civil authorities, but that doesn't mean blind obedience. That doesn't mean going along with sin. That doesn't mean not speaking out against wickedness, but there's a, a demeanor of, of honor and um, respect and a cooperation as, as much as is, is possible, but not a blind obedience to everything that the civil authorities might, uh, might have to cook up. Um, but Paul adds for the servants here, he adds a motivation, a reason. Why should they regard their own masters as worthy of honor? Why should they act like this? Well, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So Paul here, he's got a, a concern that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled, that, that God's name might be honored. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? And that hallowed be your name. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that is Paul's, that is Paul's prayer. He wants the, the true and living God. He's been preaching against idolatry and saying these gods of the nations are not gods at all. Uh, the true and living God created the world and sent Christ into the world. And this is the, the message which is then spreading there uh, in Ephesus. And um, he wants that message to, to spread and grow and, and to, to go between these great, these great households that are there in Ephesus. So imagine a scene in ancient Ephesus. Um, there's the, the masters of households are uh, taking a stroll in their, in their togas. Can you imagine the conversation? Ah, Rufus, how are you doing? Well, not, not so good, Felix. What is it? 
still those slaves? Yes, it's those slaves. They were pretty useless to begin with, um, but now it's got even worse. They are saying that they have a new master, one called Christ. And I, I can't get any work out of them. And they're just useless. Oh, yes, um, Rufus. I've heard of, uh, I heard of that Christus Christ. Is that that Paul fellow? Yeah, that was a strange, I think it was a strange teaching from the East. Well, this true and living God sounds a bit strange. But you can imagine that, that sort of conversation, that, that they've got these slaves, servants, who are there. And the, the name of the, of, of the true and living God and Christ are reviled because the servants are acting, uh, kind of acting up. But then imagine the scene uh, a few weeks later after the, the servants, have, they've had the, the instruction from Ephesians and 1 Timothy. And, uh, and then Rufus meets his friend Felix again. And uh, oh, Rufus, how are you doing? Oh, Felix, yeah, quite a transformation, actually. Um, the servants, yeah, they, they've actually, apparently the true and living God wants the servants to serve well. I didn't realize that, but that's what he wants. And this Christ came as a servant. And, well, that sounds more interesting. And so can you see the nature and the character of how these, um, these servants have been in the household would have a big effect on what those in authority thought of the message. Okay, so that's why he's saying that here. And you see, Paul is giving this instruction to, um, to Timothy, to the, the bond servants, the servants there. And in a way, though, it's, it's nothing that he himself has not done. I mean, Paul hadn't technically been a slave, had he? But he, um, he had been in bond. He had been imprisoned. And do you remember, what, you remember the book of Philippians, where he's, he's writing quite excitedly from prison, saying, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, because it's become known throughout the whole palace guard that I'm in chains for Christ. So his Christ has been made known uh, because of his low condition. And then at the end of the letter, he says, you know, those in Caesar's household send their greetings. So this, this situation Paul had been in when he was in chains resulted in the advance of the gospel. And as he's giving pastoral care and counsel to those in unbelieving masters, you can imagine him saying, look, actually, uh, God can use this sort of thing for the advance of his gospel. So you sort of see how, how uh, that is happening. And so they would exercise godliness in extremely hard places, and God would use that to advance his kingdom. Think of how he did that through, through Joseph or through Esther or through these other, other situations. And evidently, some of the masters in these great houses had been converted. The gospel was advancing them because uh, Paul then turns to those, uh, address those with believing masters in verse 2. Um, so those with believing masters must not be uh, disrespectful, must not despise their masters on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved, beloved. So those with believing masters face just a different set of temptations. You'd think it would be much easier, wouldn't it, to have a believing master and, and a, a master who's less harsh. Um, but just imagine, that sort of on a Sunday morning, you're, you're worshipping uh, alongside your, your brother, and uh, then on Monday, you're back in this great house, and you're having to receive instructions and orders about where to work in the fields or where to work in the house. And just, just imagine that great potential for just bitterness and resentment and concern over your own uh, condition. It's just all the ingredients of great resentment and bitterness and sorrow must 
must be there. And it's almost it's kind of rubbed in by the fact that this the person who is the, the master of this this great house is actually a believer and you've got to know them um, socially and you've got to know them in a different setting. So in a way, there's just a different set of, of challenges here. It's, it's very easy, isn't it, to become bitter and embittered by those who are uh, in authority over us and to, to be kind of consumed, particularly if there's any kind of injustice involved. Um, so he gives this in instruction to them and he's, he's essentially, if he, he's saying, look, um, Serve them all the better. Look for examples, actually, to serve them. Um, he doesn't say here pray for them, but you can imagine if he was expanding this. You know, pray, pray for them. Be concerned for them. And other, just pastorally, this is very wise advice. If there's someone in your, in your life um, and you're, you're tempted to be embittered or to, to despise them, don't you need to be praying for that person and looking how we might serve them and be concerned for them? So this pastorally just wanted to keep them from being consumed by, by bitterness here. So this is wise counsel, but it's also uh, dignifying. He's saying that these masters, they're, they're benefiting by their good service. Um, and you think the slaves are going, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know. But um, he's actually saying that they, they are in a, a higher position. They're in a position to actually be able to serve, be a blessing to those around them. Or a series of this must be um, unbelievably hard. Um, but then he finishes saying, look, these, these masters uh, are believers and beloved. It's extraordinary, isn't it? These, that some of these uh, masters have become Christians, have become believers, and they are beloved of God. They've turned to Christ, and God loves them. Isn't it amazing? God came into the world, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And, and there they are. They've been converted. And um, they are loved by God. Well, we come through now to um, draw just draw some conclusions and, and lessons for us uh, today. And what are the lessons that we need to learn and, and how should this shape our, our prayers and our, our life together? Well, I think, first of all, we need to just be praying for brothers and sisters who are having to exercise godliness in hard places. Um, we need to pray for believers who are slaves. Think of modern slavery. Think of those in uh, Islamic-majority countries, those in minorities, those who either are literally slaves or those who pretty much are enslaved, those under uh, governments and authorities that are, that are unbelieving in, in incredibly harsh positions around the world, isn't it? This is not something we can leave in the ancient world. We need to be mindful of them and praying for those. So as part of our our prayers and our regular prayers on Sunday, we pray for the persecuted church, we pray for those who are oppressed, and we, we pray for them. Um, but also there's an encouragement, isn't there, to see, just to see with the eye of faith that God is at work in these different situations. Actually, there may be just horrible, bleak, difficult situations that we look from afar and would despair, but we need to think, actually, the Lord is at work in some of these things. The gospel is being made known. The gospel is being made known amongst the Taliban. Um, the gospel is being made known in these different places. So just pray and have faith that God is working out those purposes um, as he was doing so in the Greco-Roman world, as he's doing so in the Persian Empire, as he's doing through Egypt, that God is working out his purposes, that he has got his people. Um, and the other, the other um, 
story, I think, when we think of the little the little slave girl, you know, Naaman the Syrian, and that little girl, if you, if you know the story, Lenny, who, who's the, the, the letter who's placed on, and it was his little slave girl who'd been captured in war, and she was a little girl, um, and she she's saying, oh, that my master would go and see the prophet who was in Israel, who will help, and she was little girl, she'd lost her parents, she'd lost everything, she's a little girl in a household, got absolutely nothing, and she is the instrument through whom God works to bring salvation to, to this man, and then from there to bring about, we don't know kind of the rest of the story, but you can imagine, to do a great work for his kingdom. And so it's just it's desperate. Thing. You hear these stories, you see those little girls who are sold for 300 bucks you know, on, on the slave market. And, you know, it breaks your heart. Um, but we just need to pray for believers in hard places and also trust that God has not abandoned his people, that he's with his people through darkest trials and difficulties. <coughs> and second, we just need to keep praying for those uh, in high places. We do this, don't we? Those, uh, as we saw at the beginning, and as, as we prayed, Paul says, when he says, I urge supplications, prayers, and intercessions be made for all people, for the kings and those who are in high positions. You can think, this just fleshes it out a bit. Who, who are those in high positions? It's probably some of those masters of some of these houses. Some of you sort of think of those in the congregation and, and you get to know their situations. You think, right, we need to pray for Rufus and Felix and these, these kind of characters. Maybe not publicly, but we need to be praying for those certain authorities, the great power who are making people's lives miserable. So praying that God will break the arm of the wicked, praying that his gospel will go out, going out and that sort of thing. And praying that Western governments should be, be applying pressure. And these sort of things are also appropriate. Um, but I think, so So there's uh, praying for our, those uh, godliness in um, hard places. And I think, um, having seen this, we do need to be praying for each other um, in the workplace, don't we? Uh, when it comes to our own situations, uh, I guess you might be giving thanks at this point that your situation is not like their situation. And nevertheless, we do need to be praying for each other in uh, the workplace. And for those, you know, some of you are hard at work at home, but some of you are hard at work, uh, at work, as we put it. Um, and we pray for each other that we'd be exercised in godliness in what are sometimes very hard places. You, you and our believers in the UK have just suffered great difficulty, great injustice, great trouble, and we need to be praying for them and praying for each other in these difficult situations. Maybe not able to pray for all these situations publicly, but as we get to know each other and each other's concerns and uh, concerns with awkward bosses or concerns in the workplace or with injustice, those are the matters of our prayer. And to be trusted, actually, that is how the Lord, he, he often he advances his gospel through these matters. Um, so God's concern is not just for churchy things and Sunday things, but God's concern is that his gospel advances through uh, through the world, and he uses the workplace. Often it's people that we have uh, worked for or worked with or people who have worked for us that have had a chance to get to know us and they've seen us, and we have an opportunity over time to, to share the gospel. I think of one, um, there's one woman who did, did, did some work for, for us and for, for our household, and she, she'd ended up working for lots of Christian households, and she started out just very hardened to gospel, and over a course of about five, ten years, various things happened. Uh, she's not, I don't think she's a believer yet, but she's, she's really softened to the gospel through a number of events. And that was all through a job that she had uh, for, for different households. And so just in our prayer, we just sort of need to be alive to the fact 
of how the Lord uh, is at work amongst us, how, how he uses all these different connections and situations that we are in to, to advance his gospel. And there are various kind of workplace networks, aren't there, for you know, doctors and lawyers and all sorts of the pr- professions and other people to, to try to um, advance uh, the gospel and, and support one another who are having to exercise godliness in hard places. Well, why? So that the name of our God and the teaching of the gospel is not dishonoured. So that to turn it around, so he is honoured. Um, and ne- nearly finished. So um, for also, I didn't quite know where to put this in the, the sermon. Um, but the, uh, the, the Bi- notice how the Bible puts an end to how it attacks uh, injustice and evil. It is it's gradually, isn't it? It's over time. So we have this, this, this light of the gospel which starts in Jerusalem and Judea, and then it gradually works itself through the, the, the ancient world. And so often we, we kind of get, people get very upset with Paul for not abolishing slavery on the spot. And we think, well, hang on, he's, he's in prison himself on the trial for three years. You know, give the guy a break. Um, and, but, but yet you see how the, these things work out gradually through uh, the culture of injustice is chipped away at and attacked on, on numerous fronts. And that is how the gospel progresses and how we should be expected to, to see today. And I think often a response, or one common response to injustice is the sort of revolutionary response. You know, this is unacceptable. We need to burn it down, start again. And you have injustice. And then on top of that, you just think you're going to help by piling a whole load of more injustice on top and sort of burning the city down. Um, and what are you left with then? So actually, the God's way of dealing with these things is different from the world's way of dealing with these things. And finally, we've reached the end. Um, just we think about, well, Jesus Christ and how the gospel is that story of slaves set free, story of, of liberation. And that happens at a personal level, doesn't it? As these people are set free from their sins and coming to faith, that happens that happens cosmically. That is God's purpose for the whole of creation. And so I just wanted to finish by reading um, these words from the, the book of Romans um, about being set, set free from groanings and, and sufferings. Romans chapter 8, 18 to 25. Paul writes this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and think of some of those sufferings, of some of those um, we've spoken of, the sufferings of this present present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope 
but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with impatience. So brothers and sisters, beloved of the Lord, we wait in patience for that great day when the Lord Jesus will return in glory and triumph. That will be our exodus. That will be our final liberation. Then everlasting joy will crown our heads and sorrow and silence will flee away. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S, dot co, dot U-K. For more, thank you.